Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a really interesting discussion on emergent endotracheal intubation in the era of COVID-19. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Fine as our guest, and we'll be discussing his article entitled, Practice Outcomes and Complications of Emergent Endotracheal Intubation by Critical Care Practitioners During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay. Um, and then we're also very fortunate to have uh, Dr. Meyer, who wrote the accompanying editorial. Uh, welcome, Nate. Hey. Um, thanks for the opportunity. It's an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast with us. So, Nate, maybe we could kick off with you first. Um, why is it so important for us to understand both the outcomes and complications of uh, emergent endotracheal intubation in the era of COVID-19? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess um, pandemic aside, uh, emergent tracheal intubation is an already common yet very high-stakes procedure, and complications do happen. Uh, a recent large multi-center international observational study, uh, Intube, uh, was published in JAMA this year, and I think it highlights this, where 40% of intubations were complicated by hemodynamic instability, 9% by severe hypoxemia, and 3% cardiac arrest. And, and again, pandemic or no pandemic, um, there have also been open questions about optimal technique, including the routine use of uh, video laryngoscopy and neuromuscular blockade. And there's great variability in both practice and training. Uh, a recent survey of um, some fellowship program directors and, uh, and graduating fellows um, shows that almost half of programs in this country don't have a dedicated airway rotation. 40% of graduating fellows um, have some reservations about their competency for emergent tracheal intubation. A third of programs don't have an established protocol, and, and then even fewer um, programs have any kind of uh, structured training and more emergent airway techniques like LMA placement, uh, bougies, and fiber optic. Um, but uh, I guess, unfortunately, uh, like understanding outcomes and complications of tracheal intubation, um, specifically in the context of COVID-19, is still, um, you know, unfortunately very, very essential to our day-to-day practice. Um, you know, when I was looking, there are still 60 or 70,000 patients who are hospitalized in the U.S. now. And, and 10 to 25% of them might require mechanical ventilation at some point. Um, and, and now there's this new need to balance the safety of the procedure for, for not only the patient, but now the operator or, you know, anyone involved in the intubation as we hope to, you know, keep virus transmission to a minimum. And, you know, guidelines were uh, drafted quickly by professional societies, uh, discouraging you know, any techniques which, you know, we thought might augment aerosolization 
so, so non-invasive ventilation and bag mass ventilation uh, were discouraged during pre-oxygenation or post-induction apneic oxygenation. And then any factor which we thought might improve first-pass success and, and decrease viral exposure at the same time were encouraged. Um, and so, you know, neuromuscular blockade and, and video uh, were thought to be helpful. Um, you know, but not all of those changes uh, were necessarily evidence-based. Uh, but, but for the most part, you know, hospitals did rapidly incorporate those, those principles into a set of standardized best practices for, you know, emergent tracheal intubation for COVID-19. And, and as a byproduct, fortunately, I think that degree of standardization lends itself well to study. And, and thanks to the work of Dr. Fine and, and his team, we, we do have a chance to now gauge the effectiveness and, and maybe also some of the hidden costs of that approach. Great. Thanks, Nate. So, Dan, I want to pull you into this uh, discussion. Nate mentioned that uh, endotracheal intubation is a high-risk procedure. We need to make sure that it's safe for both the operator and the patient. And we also had an emergent COVID pandemic, which we didn't know a lot about. With that in mind, what was the motivation and rationale for your study? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been interested in the clinical aspects of emergency airway management. When I came to my current institution as a young attending, I came to a division that had a lot of notoriety and expertise regarding airway management. The critical care division at Montefiore Medical Center handles all the emergency airways outside of an operating room or, or ER. But despite the expertise, there wasn't a lot of data regarding uh, basic facts like how many airways were being done and what the success rates and outcomes of those airways were. So I went about uh, devising a way through extraction of medical record data uh, specifically the intubation notes, to um, obtain that data. So I was able to ascertain how many airways we were doing, what our success rates were, and then answer some research questions regarding uh, whether we were better at the, during the day or the night and whether how, how we did in the inside the ICU compared to outside the ICU. And all this prior work, along with some changes to our intubation note prior to the pandemic, um, put me in a good position to examine our airway practices with the onset of the pandemic. Um, so, you know, yeah. Great. So let's jump into your study methods then. And specifically, uh, what was your definition of a first-time successful intubation as well as uh, the definition of a periprocedural hypoxemia because that weighs into your outcomes? And how did your study methods um, address any limitations of any previous studies? Right. So we defined first-pass success as uh, insertion of the endotracheal tube during the first uh, laryngoscope blade insertion, and then desaturation was actually part of our standardized intubation note, um, whereby there's four different checkboxes that providers can click, and one of them is desaturation less than 80% during or within five minutes of the endotracheal tube insertion. So um, we're able to standardize this complication across um, all the intubations that happen, so that there's less room for provider interpretation. Uh, and was this done prior... before? Uh, sorry, was this done before um, the pandemic uh, came about, or was it only after the pandemic started? Yeah, so I actually changed the intubation note uh, about a year prior to the pandemic starting to include standardized uh, complications. Perfect. And then, in and then terms of saying... prior studies, um, 
there, with the onset of the pandemic, there was a bunch of observational studies that came out, uh, many from outside of the United States, and uh, with that, that, that told us a good amount of what was happening regarding airway management uh, in the realm of, of COVID-19 infection. But um, they were limited by the number of patients, and many seemed to be convenient samples and didn't have patient-level data regarding um, the physiologic parameters and, and laboratory values and, and severity of illness. So what my methods add to the, uh, the current literature is particularly that we were able to extract all intubation notes. So I feel fairly confident that we were able to ascertain most intubations that happened during uh, the examined time period. And then we're able to pull physiologic parameters like lab values and different comorbidities of the patients that we were studying. Great. So let's jump into your key findings. Um, during the pandemic, were we better at intubations, and did we have the same rate of complications or more complications? Dan? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. Um, defining better, generally better in intubation, is defined by the parameter first-pass success rate. Um, first-pass success rate has previously been associated with uh, rate of complications, or actually the number of attempts is previously been associated with with number of physiologic complications that occur to a patient. So we, we actually did find that our first-pass success rate increased dramatically during the pandemic. Um, associated with those findings, though, our rate of complications driven largely by an increased rate of desaturation during and after the intubation increased dramatically as well. So how did you interpret those findings? Dan? Yeah, um, I think what we found is that somehow our first pass success rate increased quite a bit. You know, with the previously mentioned guidelines, where an increased emphasis on use of neuromuscular blockade and video laryngoscopy, um, these two modalities were uh, very dramatically increased during the pandemic. Um, video laryngoscopy was used in something like 50% of intubations prior to the pandemic, and then it went up to close to 90% with the onset of the pandemic, and similar numbers were seen with neuromuscular blockade. So there was some thought that this could have led to an increased first-pass success rate uh, seen. However, when we looked at an exploratory uh, logistic regression model and we incorporated these variables, it didn't fully account for the increased first-pass success rate. So it Somewhat remains to be seen uh, why our first-pass success rate went up so dramatically. Some other theories we had is that uh, time of academic year played a big part. So fellows um, in the beginning of the study, when we compared uh, pre-intubation data, they were earlier in their academic year, and then as the year went on, we actually saw, as, as shown in our paper, that first-pass success rates went up uh, slightly as the months went by in, in, uh, progressively over the year. Additionally, there's some thought that because of the sheer enormous number of intubations that we did during the pandemic, that fellows could have even become comfortable with intubation during the course of the pandemic itself, and thus the first pass success rates. There might have been some sort of priming phenomenon where, where fellows uh, gained expertise in the very short period of time, given their uh, sheer high numbers of airways that they were doing. 
Great. So, Nate, let's pull you into the discussion here. You had the chance to review this paper. What struck you about these key findings, and how did you interpret them? Yeah, um, you know, like simply stated, it looks like COVID did, in fact, dramatically change the way intubations were performed at those three centers. Um, there definitely was increased use of VL and, and neuromuscular blockade. Um, but I think most encouragingly, um, you know, procedural success rate was actually, you know, and, and it did increase uh, with this study. It was actually modifiable by by changes in technique, um, you know, even for fellows. And your fellows did an awesome job intubating, by the way, at least by the numbers uh, here. Um, but, but, you know, it, I guess it's a bit unclear which aspects of this approach to intubation in particular and to what degree they were each contributory uh, to improve first-pass success. Like, intuitively, VL should be better in a systematic review from 2018, and uh, there's a randomized trial in the ED and ICU setting uh, that have shown improved first-pass success, you know, in particular for trainees. But it's a surprisingly inconsistent finding. Um, you know, two recent prospective um, randomized control trials each with their own limitations, uh, you know, the MAGMAN trial uh, in JAMA in 2017, and then a sub-study of the FELLOW trial um, show, actually showed no difference in, in first-pass success with video as compared to direct. Um, and, and then with regard to, um, you know, just the routine use of neuromuscular blockade, um, I guess some folks may disagree, but I'm not sure that there's not still equipoise, at least in the ED and ICU setting. Um, it seems like most supportive data comes from observational trials, um, you know, some that have stuff like propensity matching, um, but the randomized and controlled data that we have doesn't include non-anesthesia providers in an ED or ICU setting, at least to my knowledge. Um, so uh, maybe if it wasn't just one of these things, maybe, maybe it was the, the combination of, of techniques or, or changes in technique um, that, uh, you know, led to such a, you know, high effect size on, on first-pass success. Uh, or maybe like Dr. Fine mentioned, um, you know, it was just the sheer volume of intubations uh, that contributed as well during the pandemic. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to tease all of that out, um, especially seeing that this was not a uh, prospective study. Dan, I wanted to ask you about the choice of paralytic because that may play into the role of periprocedural hypoxemia. Um, I was struck that um, during the COVID pandemic, uh, 60% of patients received uh, succinylcholine, about 10% received rocuronium, and 20% received vecuronium as the choice of paralytic. Um, could you comment on, you know, the time of onset for each of those drugs, as well as side effects? Um, uh, most folks don't use vec as uh, the paralytic of choice because it takes up to two to three minutes to achieve uh, uh, paralysis, um, and it usually requires reconstitution to be used. So maybe you could comment on that practice uh, at your hospital. So prior to the pandemic, uh, we had a well-established system for airway management outside of the intensive care unit, and that includes uh, an airway bag that fellows carry around with them and a medication bag as well that they get from the pharmacy, and when it's used, they, they go and exchange it. Included in that bag prior to the pandemic uh, was vecuronium, and part of that, I believe, has to do with the fact that vecuronium can sit in the bag for any amount of time, and then when it's needed, it, it can just be reconstituted. So, so you're right, it's not really the preferred paralytic to use 
for uh, rapid sequence intubation because, as you said, it's not exactly rapid. But uh, th that is what was previously in the bag. And then once the onset of the pandemic occurred, we were dealing with frequent drug shortages. And um, pretty much uh, the bags began just to take the form of whatever uh, whatever drugs were, were available on that given day or week. So uh, that could have accounted for some variability. Um, I, I guess that there is controversy back and forth regarding which paralytic to use. Uh, additionally, there is some thought that, you know, patients who were intubated um, and then required per or persistent paralysis when they're intubated outside of the intensive care unit, vecuronium might have been a better choice uh, to keep them paralyzed and ox uh, oxygenating adequately until they're able to come to an ICU. So that could have accounted for some of the variability between paralytic use that you saw in the data. Nate, maybe you could comment as well because um, uh, definitely vecuronium would be preferred for a longer duration or period of time if the patients weren't um, in the ICU at the time. And it looked like a great percentage of patients were intubated on the floor in this study compared to the ICU. I think 83% of intubations occurred in the, on the floor. Good um, comments on that. And also, if we give succinylcholine, um, the duration of uh, action uh, usually is about 10 to 15 minutes. Um, could that have affected uh, periprocedural hypoxemia if there was a delay getting patients to uh, the ICU? Yeah, yeah. I think at least at our institution, um, you know, rocuronium is the preferred agent, um, you know, for giving you, you know, 30 minutes to an hour of, of a good effect. And, um, you know, maybe there's less hypoxemia uh, immediately with its use than with uh, an agent like succinylcholine. Um I don't know that we, I'm not familiar with anyone here using VEC, but, um, but yeah, I, I think uh, at least when we developed uh, airway management guidelines here at Wake uh, for the pandemic, um, we, um, part of our guideline was to use uh, a 1.2 milligram per kilogram dose of um, rocuronium um, for, um, for our rapid sequence. And then, uh, Dan, I wanted to ask you about um, the timing of intubation of these patients. In your paper, you mentioned that um, the reason for intubation um, was 72% uh, for hypoxemia compared to 28% prior to the pandemic. And obviously, that would play a role um, in subsequent periprocedural hypoxemia. Um, you noted in your uh, paper that um, the SATS-FIO2 ratio uh, was 313 prior to the pandemic, whereas it was around 100 during the pandemic. That obviously played a role in the, your complication rate. Maybe you could comment on that and when were you actually intubating these patients? I think it was a hot topic and a very difficult question throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and remains to be so about when is the optimal time to intubate uh, a patient suffering from COVID-19-related ARDS. I don't think we came up with that answer. I think it was a very complex interplay between uh, knowing that a patient was often safer spontaneously breathing on their own rather than with an ET tube in place and, you know, susceptible to the effects of ventilator-associated lung injury. Additionally, through much of the time period that was studied in my paper, there was a ventilator scarcity. I won't say shortage because we never ran out of ventilators, but we were frequently uh, kind of at, at the very end of our rope regarding 
our ability to have a ventilator available for a patient who who was intubated. So um, there's a very complex interplay between um, keeping a patient safe and kind of giving them a chance to hopefully turn a corner on their own versus uh, also understanding that if you just intubate all the patients at once who are on high flow nasal cannula that you are going to quickly not have any ventilators left. Yeah, it was a really challenging time, and we really applaud you and your team for the, the work that you did and for getting these findings out. Um, uh, Nate, I want to pull in you. Uh, I want to pull you in to discuss the limitations of the study. Um, Dan's mentioned the fact that this is during the pandemic um, that there were scarce resources. When you read the paper, what key limitations did you note that you want uh, the readers to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, um, overall to me, um, it, it was a a really well done study in particular, you know, during the pandemic to try to answer an urgent clinical question. Um, and, and like Dr. Fine and, and his team mentioned in their discussion, um, the main limitations are probably just those of a retrospective cohort study in general. Um, you know, while the groups were well matched at baseline, apart from some differences in hypoxia, um, you know, there is the a uh, chance of selection bias or uh, unmeasured confounders. Um, you know, some of the procedure data just by its nature is, is self-reported. Um, and then, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, there, there were just, there were multiple interventions that formed a part of that overall airway strategy, and it's hard to tell um, which aspects in particular are most important. You know, Dr. Fine also mentioned just that the dramatic increase in the the number of intubations that were performed during the pandemic, and it's hard not to imagine that fellows may have gained some procedural, you know, facility, um, you know, doing the exact same procedure in the exact same manner in the exact same setting over and over and over again. Um, you know, finally, I, I I think it would be nice to know because um, there were some trade offs that we made. Um, you know, it would be nice to know if some of these changes in technique, um, you know, in particular, you know, avoiding use of bag mask ventilation um, or non-invasive ventilation for pre-oxygenation, if those, if those were actually essential to decreasing periprocedural viral transmission, you know, in particular when there are questions about the degree of clinically important, um, you know, aerosolization, viral aerosolization, um, with use of, you know, viral filters in line uh, with with either bag mask ventilation or non-invasive. Um, but I, I recognize that that's probably data that's that's hard to come by. Definitely. And then you've had the chance to um, uh, reflect on uh, both your study methods as well as your findings. Uh, there are no perfect uh, studies. So, so based on what you know now, what would you want the readers to be aware of in terms of key limitations? I think what uh, Dr. Meyer mentioned regarding the fact that it's a retrospective study, it uh, relies on the proceduralist reporting in their intubation note accurately. That being said, it's a medical record, so um, generally uh, the data, you know, it's incumbent on the provider to, to report it accurately. It's also uh, generally co-signed by an attending when the fellow writes the note, so um, there's kind of, there's two sets of eyes, but there is some data that uh, proceduralists tend to kind of underreport specifically uh, regarding complications. Uh, that being said, uh, you know the rate of hypoxemia was exceptionally high, and so 
likely mm-hmm. is within some realm of, of accuracy for what actually happened. Um, additionally, just reemphasizing the point that this is all uh, observational data and that you know these are associations that we have regarding uh, change in techniques. So, you know, it's, uh, it raises a lot of questions regarding uh, safety of intubation and how to mitigate hypoxemia and how to uh, maximize first-pass success. But um, really, really, there's just questions that are raised, and we have to confirm them with, with other data moving forward. Definitely. So based on what we know now, how would you recommend folks go about uh, uh, intubating patients who have COVID? Um, uh, what uh, peri-procedural um, strategies should they use in terms of positioning, in terms of drugs, in terms of oxygenating? What would your recommendations be, Dan? And then I'll ask Nate. I, th- I think the way we did it is still the way that it should be done going forward. Um, I think you know the use of video laryngoscopy, neuromuscular blockade. It, it's probably the way, given that our infection control and our internal guidelines uh, are, are maximizing the idea of infection control safety. I think it's still the way to do it. I think it's worth worth asking the questions though going forward, given the fact that uh, many providers are vaccinated, that PPE shortages are no longer an issue, whether uh, the use of modalities to prevent desaturation during and after intubation, like pre-oxygenation with non-invasive ventilation and bath mass ventilation, whether we, we should consider bringing those back. I'm not advocating that, that we're doing that now or that uh, people should change their practice, but I think it's worth asking those questions. Uh, given the changing landscape of infection control and the availability of PPE. Definitely. Nate? Yeah, I I mean, I agree completely with Dr. Fine. Um, You know, we've seen, again, with with no shortage of PPE and, um, you know, with, you know, increasing vaccination rates. Um, You just in our practice here, uh, I've seen more and more use of, um, you know, bag mask ventilation or uh, non-invasive ventilation used during pre-oxygenation um, and post-induction apneic oxygenation, um, you know, to the end of preventing severe hypoxemia. Uh, I mean, we have, you know, good information from the PREVENT trial um, in, in the New England Journal from 20, 2019 um, that, that showed some, a lower incidence in severe hypoxemia with post-induction bag mask ventilation. Um, you know, with, without an increase in aspiration and, and, you know, similar findings from another single center randomized trial from, from 2006 in the Blue Journal uh, with, with use of non-invasive ventilation in that same setting. Um, and so I, I, it may be time to reconsider, um, you know, or at least reevaluate the possibility of including that uh, as a component of, you know, an overall airway strategy for these patients. Great, and we'll look for work in that regard. Um, Nate, I was struck by um, the fact that uh, 84% of the operators were not attending. Um, there was obviously the concern um, that this is a high-risk procedure, that we shouldn't have junior staff performing uh, these procedures. But obviously with the pandemic uh, occurring, um, there was a great number of patients that needed to be intubated. Um, the, the finding from uh, Dan and his team would suggest that the fellows are extremely competent at uh, intubation and uh, 
the uh, critical care departments are capable of taking care of these patients uh, fairly well. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, completely. I mean, uh, like I said, they did a fantastic job. And, I mean, their procedural success rate um, is is above uh from from what I've read, where most of the the literature is for um, you know emergent tracheal intubation in the ED and ICU setting, uh, fellow or no fellow, yeah. Dan, yeah, I mean it, we are a training institution, and traditionally fellows are the first uh, option for performing all airways, and I think. Uh, we showed in this study that they perform admirably. Uh, prior to the pandemic, our first-pass success rates were about what you see in other studies, including the previously mentioned Intube study. And then uh, with the onset of the pandemic, the first-pass success rates are, you know, pretty much the, the highest, with the exception, I believe, of the uh, Bougie study by Dr. Driver, the, the highest that I've seen in the literature. So I think uh, fellows are well qualified, and as many attendings will tell you, uh, it's probably you're, you're better off having an experienced resident or fellow do uh, certain procedures than you are uh, an attending at certain times. So fellows, I think, are well qualified to, to do these and, and many other procedures in critical care. I agree. So, um, uh, Nate, I want you to uh, conclude this podcast for us. Uh, um, in terms of the future, what should our audience be looking for in terms of uh, future research, clinical practice of endotracheal intubation? Uh, what studies uh, do you think are needed um, in order for us to advance our uh, uh, critical care? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, um, you know, overall, uh, I would just, Say, you know, first that I'm just grateful to Dr. Fine and his group for giving us a chance to learn more about the effect of all of these changes on the way that, um, you know, we are intubating patients in the ICU during the pandemic. Um, especially, you know, we've had a chance to look at, uh, you know, critically look at a couple of techniques for emergency intubation that we're using probably more commonly, um, you know, even before the pandemic, but also with great variability, the, um, you know, video and, and neuromuscular blockade. Um, I, I think the key takeaway for for me was, uh, you know, just wondering if it, if it may be time, um, like I mentioned, uh, to reevaluate the safety uh, of a strategy that avoids, that entirely avoids the use of um, you know, bag mask ventilation or non-invasive uh, ventilation during pre-oxygenation and post-induction. Um, you know, I, I think it would be great to know, like I said, um, if, if, you know, these links that we went to to minimize viral transmission actually did translate into that. But, but again, it might be hard to prove. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if it would happen um, down the road, but, um, you know, some sort of randomized trial um, evaluating the use of, of neuromuscular blockade in isolation, um, you know, in the ED or ICU setting uh, by non-anesthesia providers. Gotcha. And um, Dan, I'd like to give you the final word. Um, what what take-home messages do you want our audience to have? And again, just a congratulations uh, to you and your team on an outstanding job. Dan? Yeah, thank, thank you so much. I think, you know, the 
manuscript is a testament to the really amazing work that all the healthcare providers did at our medical center. Um, we took care of an enormous number of patients, and I think we, we cared for them as best we could under really extenuating circumstances. I think our manuscript uh, demonstrates that, as we mentioned, trainees can really intubate with very high success rates, and it really also raises some questions regarding the utility of using uh, first-pass success alone as a marker for for uh, airway success, and that if you're not maintaining the physiolo- physiology of the patient, uh, perhaps we need to also look at other parameters for whether we did a good job with the airway. I think just adding to Nate's comments on f- uh, future research, I think it, it would be also interesting for me to know if people do have really severe desaturations during uh, their intubation event, what kind of effects does that have down the line? I think that remains a, a big question. Um, and for me, it would be of, of a lot of interest if, if a patient has intermittent desaturation um, that, that is severe. What kind of long-term uh, cognitive or um, physical effects does, does that have on the patient? Definitely. And I applaud you both for, uh, firstly, Dan, for getting this work out. We, we've done a lot of um, uh, uh, new interventions in patients with COVID, and we need to evaluate whether they've been successful or not. And thank you to Nate for reviewing this paper. We really appreciate your insights. So a very big thank you to Drs. Fine and Maya for a great conversation. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. <laughs>